1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus Galatia Cappadocia Asia and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, welcome to this new series, The People of God. Uh, and that's the theme we've given it. And I hope we can work our way through this letter, First Peter, and, and invest the, ni- the next nine weeks thinking around this theme, The People of God, because it'll powerfully uplift our souls if we can learn to see ourselves how these scriptures here explain us to be. As we start that journey today, I have to say when I sat down to look at these first couple of paragraphs that I just read, I thought to myself, if only we could spend the whole nine weeks just looking at these nine verses. There are so many riches here and wonders. There is so much depth inside every little phrase in those nine verses. I think we could easily spend a week on each verse. But rather than do that and try to zoom too far into each and every phrase, we'll we'll see these concepts here that we've just read play out over and over in the letter ahead. Uh, So I think we're better actually to take uh, bigger steps through the letter and see these things come up again and again. You see in these first nine verses, Peter has flagged some key themes that the rest of the letter is going to unpack. And so we'll get plenty of time to run these big themes over in our minds and, and think about them as they do keep coming up in the weeks ahead. This letter will give us clarity on what it even is to be a Christian. This letter will show us a mysterious and yet beautiful doctrine of election into the Christian faith. It will teach us greatly then on the Christian life in the here and now. It's going to cause us to review our theology and our thinking around suffering. It's going to stir us into very deep reflection on the sovereignty of God in our lives as Christians. And it's going to fill our hearts with the sure hope of heaven that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Sound good? There's so much to look forward to in this letter, and and Peter's given us a heads up of that in these first verses. But I think we should start the journey today thinking about our theme, the people of God, by asking the question, who exactly are the people of God? Who are the people of God to whom all these things are written to, given to? Just who is Peter pitching all of this to in this letter? 
And that seems like a, a very reasonable first question. But unfortunately, the first verse of the letter is one that might cloud that question a little bit with language that might be a bit strange to us or we mightn't be used to or that we might pick up and just take the wrong way from what Peter means. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. And those two words, exiles and dispersion, could trip us up because they're words that hark back to Israel's history towards the end of the Old Testament period when Israel and Judah were taken out of the Promised Land and, and scattered to various places in the wider world. But Peter here is picking up those words and using them in a new way to describe the Christian church, which had also, if you recall, been scattered from Jerusalem under persecution by the Jewish authorities in Acts chapter 8. You can follow through on that a little bit. Dispersion and exile aren't just, you know, an ancient Jewish thing. Such was God's plan for the church too. And even today, you know, Christians around the world might not be dispersed or exiled in that same sense of being, you know, out of the promised land of Judea as the early church was. But nevertheless, they're still dispersed or exiles, I guess, in the sense of not yet being with God in the fullest sense of that. Rather, we're waiting, aren't we? We're waiting patiently for our true promised land set aside for us in heaven, in, in God's glorious presence. That these people that Peter writes to are elect is also a very important word for us to think about here at the start. To be elect is to be part of God's plan by his very choosing. The people of God are those who are chosen by him to be his people and to live out that calling as his people in, in whatever time or place that he has ordained for them. And so from that we don't really need to be too concerned with these particular regions that Peter lists here, Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. All of them are today in, in what is just Western Turkey, if you really do need to know. Uh, but those regions are not especially important. Peter's writing this letter to Christians in those regions, not because they're in those regions, but because they are Christians. So the contents of the letter here are for all believers. It's just that they come to you and I today because Peter had cause to write to the people of God in that particular context at that particular time. So it's not living in these particular regions, you know, Pontus and Asia, etc., that, that defines the people of God. But that other little word there, elect, it really does help us get a fix on these questions. To those who are elect, it is those who God has chosen to be his people, who are his people, and always will be his people. Because they are elect. Verse 2 goes on and keeps answering this question. To those who are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, Peter says. Why? Because you are the people of God. The foreknowledge of the Father means that God knew in advance. Before the foundation of the world, the scriptures do elsewhere say, he knew that he would choose us unto salvation. To be sanctified by the Spirit is to be set aside, that's what that word means, set aside for God. We are now his. 
To obey the Son is getting very explicit now, isn't it? All these things that we're talking about, all of what it means to be elect in God's foreknowledge, that we should be set aside for God by his Spirit, uh, they're linked with obedience to Jesus Christ. We're Jesus' disciples, following and hearing and obeying what Jesus has called us to as the people of God. To be sprinkled with his blood is now suddenly getting rather humbling. In fact, this is the great truth of the gospel that, that humbles every person who is brought into the people of God. To be sprinkled with his blood, what does that say? That says that we are sinners, deserving God's judgment and to be cast out of his presence forever. But for the fact that Jesus Christ came to lay down his life to die for our sin. That's what's underneath that little phrase. Verse 3 continues to answer our question as to who the people of God are. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The people of God have been born again as new people with a living hope. They've received an inheritance uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are destined for a new and true home which is reserved in heaven for them. They're being guarded by God's power through their faith. And in light of verse 2, so we don't lose it, we might see that the, the faith that guards them is their faith in the sprinkling of Jesus' blood to grant them that salvation that is ready to be revealed at the end of all things. They are the people of God. Verses 6 and 7 tell us a little bit more about these people. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The people of God are those who, when need be, are tested with suffering and trial to make sure that their faith in Jesus' blood for that heavenly home through salvation is genuine faith in Jesus' blood. They're not people who tag along, hang around church for some kind of advantage or network or connection or something in this life. They're, they're fixated on their inheritance in heaven that is granted to them by this sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Verse 8 tells us even more. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The people of God love Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. That is to say, they trust him. They trust that that sprinkling of his blood will bring them into this inheritance Peter speaks of. And they rejoice with glorious joy because they know that it will. They know that God's promises are sure and true. 
Verse 9 rounds out our section for this week, telling us this much about the people of God. They're, they're people who will obtain the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. Because faith in Jesus Christ is what brings us into this inheritance of heaven. It is what brings us into the people of God. More widely as we go, by the way, this letter is going to keep answering that question that we've just raised today, who are the people of God? But for the sake of time, let me just draw out two examples from the rest of the letter, just for some pretty quick uh, clarity on this question. If you have your scriptures there, just turn across the page to chapter 4. In in chapter 4 and verse 16, uh, uh, Peter explicitly uses the word Christian. This is who he's writing to and to whom all these promises of God belong, Christians who are obedient to and trusting in Christ, as he said here at the start. And and then a little bit further in chapter 5, at the other bookend to the whole letter here, chapter 5 and verse 14, Peter simply says that it is those in Christ to whom all of these promises belong. So the elect exiles of the dispersion, chapter 1 and verse 2, are those who are in Christ, chapter 5 and verse 14. Notwithstanding, of course, that in the middle between those two verses, uh, Peter mentions Jesus Christ some 21 times or so through this letter, uh, making all of this pretty clear. But it's good that we do stop and catch this at the outset because I tell you, there are things in this letter that our souls are going to be desperate to know have been written to us. If we have repented of our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ and the blood that cleanses us from all sin, yes, my friends, all of this letter and all of the promises of God herein are ours. I think we should flip that around and ask a second question today too as we just start out on this journey today. (laughs) Who is the God of the people? Who is the God of the people? And we'll get a very good answer on that one too. The complex, beyond our full comprehension, three-in-one God is given to us here in black and white, right up at the front of this letter in chapter 1 and verse 2. The people of God are those who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter speaks in Father, Son and Spirit language, as of course do the the other apostles of Jesus Christ. Uh, So the people of God are those people who have Father, Son and Spirit as their God. After that nice compact little expression of this in verse 2, chapter 1 verse 3 to 12 actually then starts a more elaborate presentation of the God of the people as being Father, Son and Spirit. And it it runs through this letter uh, in actual fact. God is mentioned about 32 times I counted. I might have missed some. Sometimes Peter uses that uh, phrase, uh, the word God, of of that complex Godhead, three in one, generally. But at other times, by context, he's obviously speaking of the Father when he says God. Explicitly, too, he speaks of the Father a few times, just as we've seen. Jesus, as I say, the Son, is also mentioned about 21 times in the letter, by my count. The Spirit, explicitly so, five or six times. Often they're woven together in purpose, like in verse 2 there. Father, Son and Spirit all working together for us and our salvation. 
in places like a verse 11, if you drop your, down, uh, drop your eyes down and, and sneak a peek to next week's scripture, the Spirit is presented to us as the Spirit of Christ. This is a complex three-in-one God. So too, Peter quotes the Old Testament quite a lot about Yahweh, the Lord in our English, but he calls Jesus Christ his Lord in this letter and he tells us to honour Jesus Christ as our Lord in our hearts too. This is a right thing for the people of God to do. When Peter drops the names and the titles all together and just runs with pronouns, you know, he or whom, it can be a little bit hard sometimes to figure out exactly who Peter has in mind, whether it's the one or one of the three. And that's the thing with this complex God. There is profound mystery in this three-in-one God of the Christian scriptures, but Peter consistently presents that God throughout this letter. We must admit uh, that there is some complexity and and some wonder at this uh, in our uh, humble human minds. The God of the people is complex, but we can safely say from this letter that he is three in one. And so the people of God are the people who have this three-in-one God as their God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And it's therefore no surprise that the Apostles' Creed that we looked at earlier, that has been used from uh, all through the history of the church, basically, is structured around that same three-in-one God as, as fundamental to what it is that Christians believe. Again, this may seem obvious, but I think that's important for us to stop and catch today as much as ever, uh, because most people in the world today have a belief in God in some generic sense. But Peter's letter here is explicitly to those people who belong to the Father, Son and Spirit. The election that he speaks of, the new birth that he writes of there, the living hope, the promises, the call to endure, the persecution along the way and the certain glory to come at the end of it all. Everything in this letter is for those who belong to Father, Son and Spirit. And so this letter must be for Christians. That's no longer a popular label in our culture, is it? I would say that's not even a popular name anymore, Jesus Christ. But it is only through the name of Jesus, the Son, that that we are brought into all these things. As Jesus himself said, nobody comes to the Father but through him. We need to be very clear about the God that we are following. As we begin this journey in, in First Peter, I, I wonder if, if we might, having asked those two questions, if we might now just draw out a couple of the big concepts Peter's flagged here in these nine verses. A couple I, I think that we're probably going to need all nine weeks to get our heads around. First of all, we're going to realise along the way through this letter that the Christians Peter first wrote this letter to, in Pontus and Bithynia and so on, they were suffering for their faith in Christ under persecution. And so Peter wrote to them of the fundamental certainties of the gospel that are true for all God's people, who at certain times, if and when God ordains for them, will suffer. That's a very important thing for us as Christians today to hear, because a lot of people today think as though the people of God ought not be characterised by suffering And quite the opposite. But Peter flags here at the outset what he's going to get right into in this letter, that suffering is actually a mark of the Christian life. How do you feel 
when you experience suffering? Have you ever thought things like, what have I done to deserve this from God? Why would God let me suffer if he loves me? Maybe I'm not one of the people of God after all to be suffering like this. Or have other people told you such things when you suffer? If only you had more faith, they might say. Surely you must have some unconfessed sin in your life that's keeping you out of God's blessing and favour. God does not want you to suffer. Why won't you just trust him and and come to him and, and, and just be blessed? This letter, 1 Peter, is going to highlight how shallow that kind of theology and thinking is and it's going to recast for us a more biblical view of suffering and indeed a more biblical view, therefore, of who the people of God are if we had been given to thinking that they ought not be characterised by suffering. Brace, Brace yourself for that, I tell you, because Peter is warning you here right at the start that Christians do suffer under God's sovereign care and for his glory in the end. Put away whatever else you thought about this and heard about this because Christians are those, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this they rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, they have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of their faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The suffering that God allows for you, brother and sister, if you are one of his people, will build in you a genuine faith that glorifies and praises and honours Jesus Christ when he returns. It is part of his sovereign plan. It's there in black and white. I suspect there would be very few of us who don't need a better and sharper and more biblical theology of suffering. And Peter is going to enrich our Christian faith with that in this letter. Likewise, a lot of people think that Christians are people who, you know, just for some reason, randomly or something, believe in God, whereas everyone else doesn't or whatever. Or or they're people who always go to church. Or they're people who are just trying to please God all the time. Or they're trying to follow Jesus and be like Jesus and so on and so on and so on. But again, Peter flags something up front here that's going to open that up a bit wider in this letter. This idea that God chose us to be his people. That wasn't because we had pleased God or gone to church every week or anything like that. Rather, it was because of the Father's great mercy, Peter writes here, meaning that it wasn't something we deserved from God. It's the very opposite to that. It was the Father's great mercy to us that he caused us to be born again into this hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And even now, brothers and sisters, he is the one guarding us through that faith in Jesus Christ that he has given us. 
That anyone is numbered among the people of God is entirely God's doing. This is what it means to be elect, verse 2, that God elected us into his people to receive his blessings and purely because of his mercy rather than who we are or, or what we've ourselves done, he chose us. He elected us to salvation as his people. He sanctified us. That is, he set us aside for himself by his spirit, it says. Not by our spirit, by his spirit, for sprinkling with Jesus' blood because we were otherwise sinners who should be cast out of his presence forever. And he's brought us into an obedience to Jesus Christ that could have never come naturally to us to begin with. Being a Christian is not about being good or deserving or worthy of God and his reward of heaven. It's, it's about God having called us out of the world and into his grace. He is sovereign over our faith, brothers and sisters. And I would put it to you, therefore, that his foreknowledge, verse 2, was foreknowledge not of what we would do, but of what he would do for us. That's actually the only way, if you think about it more than 20 minutes, the only way to harmonise his foreknowledge in all of this with his mercy to us in this, to save us from who we truly are. So catch this too at the start of this letter about the people of God. God is sovereign over his people. It was his choice. That's a hard thing for us to grasp. Let's pretend, uh, let's not pretend it's not. But there it is in black and white in the scripture we've just read. When it does start to sink in, this, this truth of God's sovereignty over even our faith, it starts to cause to well up in our hearts an assurance, a deep, deep, profound, life-changing assurance of our salvation as we come to know how sure all of these promises of God are for us, who he chose to be gracious and merciful to. If we've come to Christ in repentance and put our trust in his blood to wash away our sin and, and we're following him in joyful obedience, as Peter writes here, then that's because in God's foreknowledge he caused us to be born again into this hope. It's because we've been set aside for God by the Spirit of God to be his people that we are his people. And we will obtain as the outcome of the faith he has given to us the salvation of our souls. The inheritance of heaven is set aside for us. It can never perish or fade. Read these nine verses again later and just glory in the absolute assurance that God's sovereignty over our faith gives to us. For some of us, these are going to be new or unfamiliar concepts that we've never really explored or thought about much more as a Christian before. <laughs> Ideas like, you know, God being sovereign over our faith and having chosen us for salvation in Christ. Ideas like, as his people now, we can reasonably expect that suffering will be part of the journey that he's got in front of us to walk while we wait for that inheritance that he's put aside for us. But if you're a Christian, then you need to get into these truths. It is very important if you're a Christian to know why that is so, that you are a Christian. It's very important for you to know why God ordains the various ups and downs in life that he ordains for you. 
And to know through these things without a shadow of a doubt that it is his work to bring you through various trials and into the certain destiny at the end of all this. Being his people in his presence, forever bringing glory to Jesus Christ, your Saviour and your Lord. If you've been set aside by the Spirit for faith in Jesus Christ, then that is God's foreordained plan to bring you to him. And he will not fail. Sit with these nine verses for the rest of the week and and think about how these truths of Scripture, as hard as they are, think about how they might wash through your thinking to all the different things that you're walking through in life at the moment. Try to find some deep, dark recess somewhere at the bottom of your heart where these promises from God can't bring some kind of new perspective to. See if you can. See if these opening verses won't strengthen your faith. Some of you may not yet have been born anew into this living hope which Peter speaks of here. Some of you might be looking at all this and wondering how to get into this faith. I mean, if God is sovereign over it, how do you get into it? Or wondering why get into it if it's still going to involve suffering in this life? I wonder if that's the Spirit starting to whisper these things to you if you're thinking and seeing these things there on the page, come in. It's always a beautiful, mysterious thing, the way God calls to each one of his people very personally. But he tends to use his word. If you read this word and hear his voice today, then then know today that all you need do is come in. If he is calling you, you just come in. Come before this loving God and and repent of the selfish sin that's had you living out of relationship with him all this time, and and just come in. Come and trust in the one who has died for your sin so that you can be numbered among the people of God. Come and, and just sit in wonder for the time being. Wherever you're at, I hope you all look forward to the rest of our journey through 1 Peter. And for today, let me just close in prayer for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures to us as always and the chance to start a new term and, and, and to look at this letter that we've just opened up for the term in First Peter. We thank you in advance, Father, for the truths that we see already put down on the page here, that you chose us for yourself, that you have all kinds of things ordained for our life, but certain and joyful glory in the end. Be with us, Father, as we try to grasp some of these truths of Scripture, as we try to grasp the the heights and depths of this letter and and strengthen our faith as we work through this letter, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his eternal glory, amen.